When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the High Vibration Living Podcast. I'm your host, Chef Whitney Aronoff, founder of Starseed Kitchen and High Vibration Foods. Join me for conversation where we learn about food, wellness, travel, and spiritual concepts for high vibration living. Only you know what your body needs. Let this be the reminder that you have the power to tap in and know the food, self-care, and spiritual practices that will best serve you. I will be sharing my knowledge and learning with you from experts providing insight into nourishing all the layers of you, the physical, emotional, spiritual, and etheric bodies, so you can feel your best and live your dreams. Let's get started. Daryl Bouchard is passionate about healthy living, healthy eating, and lifelong learning. Daryl grew up working for the family mineral business in Redmond, Utah, and then earned a Bachelor of Science degree at Southern Utah University, followed by an MBA at Western Governs University. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Chef Whitney, thank you so much for having me on. I am delighted to be here. Salt is sometimes seen as a boring topic, but I couldn't be more thrilled. I am thrilled as well because it's something I obviously use in my life every day. And it's what I use to support my clients with healthy, delicious, flavorful food. So I'm excited to help demystify salt, help people understand how to buy salt and the importance of having quality salt in their diet. And you are the best person out there to connect with and talk to about this. Well, this is going to be fun. You know, I always say salt is one of the most misunderstood minerals on earth. For thousands of years, it was essential for life. It was essential for trade. Every civilization started around access to salt deposits. And yet today, if you asked an audience who has heard salt's bad, you know, almost everybody will raise their hand. And so hopefully we can demystify and talk about why people think salt's bad and and some of the differences in salt. Fantastic. Well, I want to start and learn a little bit more about what you do um, in your family company and how you guys as a family got into minerals and salt. So great, great question. And it's not just my family involved in Redmond anymore. It's a lot bigger than that, but it started with two brothers. And in the 1950s, uh, my grandfather and his brother had a farm in central Utah. And this farm, there was, you know, just like a lot of, you know, small town farmers in the 1950s, they were kind of struggling. Um, yeah. It was a big drought and uh, it kind of made farming even harder than it, than it would have been otherwise. But in World War II, my grandfather was actually a business manager and a riveter at McDonnell Douglas in California. And his brother was a miner at Kennecott, which is a big copper mine here in Utah. And so the two brothers together made quite a pair. You know, there was some business experience and some mining experience. And under their farm, just north and south of the alfalfa field, there was a little outcropping of, of salt that the Native Americans had harvested and the early pioneer settlers had noticed when they came into the valley. And so they, they figured there had to be 
salt under their farm because of these two outcroppings north and south of their farm. And so with the, the mining experience and the business experience, they went and took a big steel rod and pounded it down through the field to see where it hit the salt. And about 30 feet below the surface, there was this natural salt deposit, this uh, crystalline mineral salt from a Jurassic aged seabed. And so they went and got a loan. They didn't tell either of their wives. They went and got a loan, came back, bought a bulldozer and some, some, uh, some jackhammers and mining equipment. And they went into the salt business and they, their, uh, their dad told them that uh, they would lose their shirts um, and they should never go into the salt business, but they didn't listen. And uh, whether they were smart or just pig headed enough to be successful, they took their farm and turned it into a, a little salt company back in the 1950s and originally sold the salt mostly to local farmers. You know, animals just like humans need salt. So do cows and horses. And and so they would sell the salt to local farmers and they would also sell some to the state of Utah because salt will melt ice and snow off roads. And they didn't use it for themselves as far as food salt. Well, actually, they did, but they didn't sell it as food salt. Um, you know, back in the 1950s, flour was was white, sugar was white, salt was white, and this salt that came out of their mine was this. Uh, you probably can't tell in the picture there, but it's a kind of a rosy, a rosy mm -hmm. pink color. And so they thought, well, the salt must be inferior because it's not it's not white like flour, it's not white like sugar, it's not white like salt. Um, and so they didn't sell it. They, they used it for themselves and they thought it tasted better, but sometimes you're biased of your own product. Everybody thinks their tomato from the garden tastes better than the neighbors. Um, and so they used it as a family, but they didn't sell it to food salt. And then in the, in the 70s, the health food movement started to take off and the health food stores were popping up and people were trying to you know, get back to more natural, healthy living. And a nutritionist came through the area and got a tour of the salt mine just because that's something you do. You know, probably saw the Grand Canyon, kept coming up through Utah, uh, saw the salt mine. We didn't think much of it. Uh, a month or so later, we started getting these phone calls, people asking to buy salt. We said, great. Do you want it for your cows? You're looking for your farm. What are you looking for? And they said, no, there was a nutritionist. And he wrote this article and he said, the healthiest, tastiest salt in the U.S., comes from your salt mine there in central Utah. And so the family said, well, we probably ought to sell it for, for food salt if, if we're getting these calls. And, and so the family sat around and said, what do we call this stuff? It's, it's not processed salt. It's not fake salt. It, it's just real salt. Yeah. And the name's stuck. And so now if you uh, find our product, it's called real salt because they lacked any other uh, bright ideas and <laughs> couldn't think of some cute name. And so they said, well, it's it's not, it's not processed. It's just, just real salt and the name stuck. So that's kind of the reader's digest version of, of how I got into the salt business. Well, they were ahead of their time in naming their product real salt, because now we're living at a time when you go to the grocery store, there's all different types of salts you can choose from with a variety of different labels. And most people still don't look at the ingredients list. And even with salt and spices, um, and seasonings, you have to look at the ingredients list. So do you know when salt went from being an item from the land or the sea into something that has, you know, maldextrin, anti-caking agents, and, you know, other ingredients that aren't health supportive? 
you know, Chef Whitney, that's, that is a very insightful question and one that I actually don't get asked a lot. Um, but if we went back, um, you know, 200, 300, 400,000 years ago, all of us would have eaten more salt because everything that we ate outside of season would have been preserved in salt. You know, if we're going to have a piece of meat um, preserved at all, we're going to we're going to jerky it. You know, smoking and using salt will preserve the meat. If we're going to eat veggies, uh, let's say we you know want us have some veggies outside of of the garden season, we're going to make kimchi, sauerkraut, fermented veggies, and we do that with salt. And so salt was an essential preservative, and we didn't have all of these bad associations with salt. So what happened? Well. The turn of the century, the refrigerator was invented. And before then, we would have eaten a lot more salt because it was an essential preservative. Mm -hmm. And around that same time, the nature of salt changed. So if you out into the ocean and you look at seawater, seawater is a complex chloride. So seawater is about 3%, 2 to 3% salts. And, and the other is water. And that's why our bodies are 0.9% saline. And so the reason that seawater stings your eyes is it's, it's two to three times more salty than, than the saline solution in our bodies. But if we go to the hospital, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to give us an IV of saline solution, which is salt water. And so it's not the salt that's bad. In fact, an IV of anything but salt water would be disastrous. If you've got an IV of distilled water, your cells would start to rupture. Um, if you got an IV of Coca-Cola, that would be even worse. <laughs> and as exciting as a, an IV of coffee sounds in the morning, that's going to be equally problematic. We have to have 0.9% saline because that's what our bodies are. And so seawater, if you go out into the seawater, it doesn't occur as pure sodium and chloride with other chemical additives. Some of the things that you mentioned, anti-caking agents, maltodextrins, there's all kinds of ingredients we can talk about that are added to salt today. Seawater in nature occurs as a complex chloride. So it's mostly sodium and chloride. That's what our bodies are based in, sodium and chloride. But there's also trace amounts of potassium chloride, calcium chloride. Uh, of course, there is sodium chloride, but these other complex chlorides, even trace amounts of iodine, selenium, zinc, all of these trace minerals that occur in seawater. Well, some of those are pretty valuable. Calcium chloride, pretty valuable. You can sell that to a vitamin company. Um, potassium chloride is pretty valuable. You can sell that for industrial or medical uses. Um, and magnesium chloride, um, also very important. And in our bodies, we have a sodium potassium pump that helps regulate the intercellular and extracellular fluids. That's sodium's main job in the body is actually to create conductivity because our bodies are electricity. Our, our mind tells our hand to move because of an electric current. And so we need to conduct electricity. And so it's an electrolyte, which is conducts electricity. And so salt companies around the turn of the century realized that they could take that seawater and the way seawater has always been turned into natural salt is you take that seawater, you bring it into a, a pond, you typically line that pond with a, a clay. So it might be a gray clay, like the French gray clays, the French gray salt. It might be a red clay, like the red clays in Hawaii that give us that Hawaiian red salt. Ah. And so you line the pond with clay because clay will create a barrier that doesn't let the water just filter out through the sand. So you bring the seawater in, seawater that at that point is about 3% sodium chloride. Well, as it starts to evaporate, becomes 4, 5, 6, 10, 20, at 26% sodium chloride, water is what we call at max salinity. 
So what'll happen as soon as that water hits 27%, 1% of that salt solution will then fall out because the water can only hold 26% before it gets too heavy and the salt falls out of suspension. Now, if you did that naturally, all of those other trace elements, the potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, calcium chloride, all settle off together into the bottom of that pond. Then you go out and you rake the salt crystals up and you pick up some of that gray clay with the complete natural salt crystal and you get this beautiful French gray salt that we, we know and love. And what you get is the complete natural holistic salt crystal complete with potassium, magnesium, calcium, chloride, little bit of the mineral rich clay that comes off that gives it a really nice uh, sweeter flavor. And the body knows what to do with it because it's it's how our bodies are based. Our bodies are saline solution in motion. If we did the same process in Hawaii with the red clay, we would get that beautiful red Hawaiian salt. So salt companies though realize that instead of using a clay lined pond, they could line that pond with a different membrane, a different process. And you could pull all the water into the first pond, leach off the potassium chloride then pump the water to the next pond with a different membrane, a different liner, pull off the calcium chloride, pull off the magnesium chloride. And so through a series of evaporation ponds, salt companies could then start to take away some of those other chlorides. An interesting example is the Great Salt Lake here in Utah. One of the most profitable salt products that come off the Great Salt Lake is magnesium because this Great Salt Lake, it's sodium and chloride based, but there's a good amount of magnesium chloride in the Great Salt Lake. And so through electrolysis and different membranes, they can pull out the magnesium chloride. They can actually turn it back into metal magnesium. And then you can take the sodium and chloride that's left and sell it for road salt or whatever. But that changes the nature of salt because it'd be like if, if, if you took an orange, orange we know is rich in ascorbic acid. And if you could take that orange, run it through a process, and you and I are orange farmers, and we could pull out the ascorbic acid and sell it to the vitamin companies, but the orange still looks like an orange and it still tastes fairly close, then you and I are geniuses because we've just really expanded the, the economics of that orange. And I don't think it was malicious. I, I think it was just simply economics. And salt companies today will do that. They will, through a series of evaporation ponds, they can successfully eliminate some of those other natural chlorides that occur with salt. So that happened around the turn of the century. So the nature of salt started to change. What also happened about that same time is, you know, this is when we think, you know, food should look white, our, you know, flour should look white, our sugar should look white, our salt should look white. And so through a series of these evaporation ponds, they could remove some of those other natural minerals that give it that unique color. Um, and what they also found is salt in nature is hygroscopic. Hygroscopic means uh, attracts moisture out of the air. So if you live in a humid area and you put a salt crystal on, it, on your kitchen table, it'll actually suck water out of the air and you'll end up with a pool of water under the salt crystal. It's salt is that hygroscopic, which makes sense because remember in the body, salt's job is to regulate intercellular, extracellular fluid. And so moisture and salt go hand in hand. Well, because of this, um, natural process that salt goes through. If you have a salt shaker out on your kitchen table and it's really humid, that salt shaker will start sucking water out of the air into the salt crystals, which will make the salt clump. 
So to stop that, or if your salt does clump, the best thing to do is just, you know, tap it a couple of mm -hmm. times with your hand and it, it breaks it up. But the salt companies got together and said, what chemicals can we add to the salt to stop its ability to interact with moisture? What can we take that salt crystal and coat it with to stop its ability to draw moisture in because that makes the salt clump? So they came up with a whole list. There's 30 or 40 different chemicals that are approved as a salt additive to stop salt's ability to interact with moisture, which is a little silly because salt's job in the body is to interact with moisture. And so there's a list of chemicals, very common ones or something called sodium ferrous cyanide. Of course, nobody wants to see that on their label. And so they'll call it anti-caking agent E535. So if you ever see that on your salt label, anti-caking E535, just know that sodium ferrous cyanide. Uh, another another name for that is yellow preciative soda. So sometimes you'll see on the ingredient list, yellow preciative soda, you'll see anti-caking E535, which is all sodium ferrous cyanide, which is sodium, ferrous is iron, and cyanide is, is not good. Uh, another really common one is sodium silicoaluminate. Um, if you look at the back of your antiperspirant, you'll see a very similar chemical because it stops the way the body interacts with moisture, which is why it's an antiperspirant, which is interesting because if you took two licks of your antiperspirant every morning before breakfast, it's not gonna kill you in one lick, but I, it's not something I would recommend doing every morning um, after you put it under your arms, don't lick your antiperspirant. Um, but yeah, this is a chemical that's in a lot of our food salts today. And so, and the list goes on and on. Um, and we can talk about iodine uh, here in a minute, which, you know, I think is an important discussion when it comes to salt. But you earlier you said, look at the label. And when it comes to salt, that's so important because, mm -hmm. you know, again, if we were in a live audience and you said, who has heard sea salt is better? My guess is 70, 80, maybe even higher percentage of people have heard that sea salt's better for them. And if you went back into the 1960s and 70s, that might have been the case because maybe the early, or those early sea salts weren't as processed. Today, it's a marketing term. So you can walk into the grocery store, the health food store, walk onto Amazon or wherever you buy, and you can find sea salts that have all kinds of chemicals, all kinds of processing done to them. And so really the term sea salt is, is bastardized for a lack of a better term. And really you should look at the label on the back and not on the front because with salt, the front of the label doesn't tell us much anymore. I've heard a few different things about sea salt these days because of the quality of the ocean and all the other things that are in the ocean these days. Um, not just plastics, but the fact that we're dealing with so many ships in the ocean that use gasoline, and that of course gets into the water, that sourcing salt from ancient seabeds is more health supportive than choosing real sea salt because there's just so many layers that could potentially be in that water. Have you heard anything like this? You know, yes. And unfortunately, we humans haven't been the best stewards of this planet that we live on. Um, and we see that we see that all around us. And with oceans, it's even more critical because water is the universal solvent, um, which means that if you have a big swimming pool and you have the kitty area that says this is the peeing section of the pool and you have the deep end of the pool, um, it doesn't take too long for that water because it's the universal solvent to to mix and dissolve that completely. So unfortunately, Exxon Valdez that takes place clear up into Alaska 
after a few years, there's remnants of Exxon Valdez clear down through through the South American coast. Um, and the same can be said with BP, with the Mediterranean cruise ship uh, disaster, you know, several years ago. We've got Japan with the, the nuclear plant meltdown. And so, yes, our oceans, unfortunately, aren't as maybe clean or pristine as they were, you know, thousands or millions of years ago. And so I do think that's a consideration. Um, and, and so I do think sourcing is an issue. I think one of the questions, and, and later on we can talk about what, I think there's three great questions to ask to find a great salt or a great kale chip or a great, great eggs or whatever it is that you're eating. Um, and I think these three questions will help you find that. But I do think knowing the source is important. Um, you know, if, if you were to buy some salt and it came out of the Gulf at the same time as the BP oil spill, I, I think that's a concern. Um, you know, years later, is it as much of a concern Probably not because there is dilution that takes place. Um, and, you know, there's others that are concerned with the, some of the ancient sea salts. You know, you hear, oh, you know, there's, there's some of these, you know, trace minerals in these ancient sea salts. And, and so because we live on the planet Earth, I don't think there's, there's perfection in any of the foods we eat I, because, you know, we do live here and, and we deal with the best we can do. But I, I do think it is a valid, it's a valid concern. And I do think, you know, every few years you'll see a, an article on the microplastics. You know, fortunately, those have been barred um, in most countries. And, you know, you don't go and buy the, the smelly perfume soap that has all the little, you know, blue beads in it anymore because it turns out those all end up in the ocean and they end up in the fish. Um, and so fortunately, countries are getting better about dumping plastics and, and microbeads and triclosans and pharmaceuticals. You know, that was another big thing on the coast. People found um, they didn't want their pharmaceuticals to get into the bad hands. And so they would think, well, maybe I'll just flush them down the toilet better than, you know, having somebody break in and steal the pharmaceuticals. And then they realize that those pharmaceuticals end up in the water supply, whether it's a, a municipality that just circulates the water, because a lot of these, um, these municipal water cleansing systems aren't set up to pull out hormones. They're not set up to pull out some of the pharmaceuticals that people were flushing. So I think education is getting better, but, but I do think it's a concern and, and something that all of us as consumers should be asking about the source of our, you know, the real source. With salt, it's hard because you might go into a big box store and you find a jar of salt, but you don't know where it comes from. They don't really say on the back, this came from this particular part. It might say Mediterranean, that's a big body of water. It might say the Gulf of Mexico, or it might say the San Francisco Bay, which if it does, I'd probably be a little concerned um, with salt eating salt mm -hmm. out of the San Francisco Bay, but it doesn't tell us most of the time. And so, and oftentimes you might even call the manufacturer and they don't know because they've just bought it in a bulk bag from a bulk distributor and they don't really have that traceability, which I, I think is important with our food supply today. So what are those three questions you think consumers need to ask? So I like these questions because I think I, I'm big into mountain biking. I love mountain biking. And I think the same questions could apply if you're going to go buy a new mountain bike or if you're going to go, you know, buy, you know, um, whatever you're going to buy. I think these are good questions. So the first know is know who's producing it. Um, because today, so much of our food supply is commingled, which I think even farmers markets, you know, there's a farmers market here in town. And, and in the farmers market, there are some legitimate farmers who are marketing their products, but there's also a bunch of people that just go buy a bunch of bulk food and they're selling it at the farmer's market, um, which is fine. I mean, I'm all about small business, I'm ownership, but I do think 
asking who is producing it is a great question. Um, and so if you're buying eggs, if you're buying, you know, local meat or whatever it is, know, know who is actually producing it, because then you can, act, you can get the answer to the next two questions. So the next one is what's the source? Where is it actually coming from? With salt, that's really important because as we just talked, you probably don't want to get salt from the Sea of Japan, especially during the, the meltdown, right? Or maybe during BP, if you're getting your salt from the Gulf, you may want to find a, maybe switch to the Sea of Japan during the BP disaster. So I think knowing the source, where it actually is coming from is really important. If it's a local farmer, you know, what are they doing to their field? Um, you know, that's, and that's the third question is, what are they doing to it? Where, what's the process? So in terms of salt, you know, know who's producing it, know where it's coming from, what region or ancient seabed, current ocean. And then the, the last question is, is what's the process? Are they taking anything out? Like some of the examples we talked about earlier, and are they putting anything in? Because those two things can really change, not only the flavor, and as a chef, you know this, you know, really changes I, the flavor. It, it does. And, and I am, I, I love Redmond, obviously I'm a little biased, but there's other great quality salts out there that I have in my own kitchen. And, and I think once you pull out those minerals that are naturally occurring with the salt, and then you add a series of chemicals to stop the salt's ability to interact with moisture, the salt goes from this sweet, savory, flavor enhancing natural product to something that's bitter and masks the the beauty of, of what salt and our bodies crave. You know, oftentimes we might think we're craving potato chips, um, but we're really craving is good, clean salt. And, uh, and I think it's just one of the beauties of moving to that natural and listening to our body's cravings. And even sugar is actually um, confused with salt. Some people really think they're having a sugar craving. And so next time you're craving a Krispy Kreme donut or a, a big, you know, whatever it is, just take a couple little salt crystals and just suck on that salt crystal and, and it'll actually taste sweet at first, um, which is an indication that it's good. By the time you eat the fourth or fifth one, it'll start to taste salty. But oftentimes just a little bit of good, clean salt and water will, will hit and satisfy sugar cravings which is surprising to most people, especially if they're, you know, trying to do some intermittent fasting or maybe skip a meal. Um, if you've never fasted before, that can be difficult. But a little tray of salt crystals and water can really help satisfy those cravings, which you wouldn't expect. Most people wouldn't expect salt to to satisfy that craving, but it's because our bodies are craving salt, and sometimes we confuse that for sugar. Is it true that to really get hydrated by a glass of water that you need to add a pinch of salt to it? Yes, particularly depending on the, the water source. You know, some of our, our natural spring waters do have salts in that water. Um, distilled water, I think there's a good place for that, especially if we're living in a place where we might get pharmaceuticals and other additives into the water supply. Distilling is a great way to get rid of, of some of those other chemicals. But our bodies are saline solution in motion. And so if you drink distilled water, or if you've ever noticed your tears are salt, your sweat is salt. I don't recommend tasting it, but your urine is salt. And so if you're drinking distilled water, because it's the universal solvent, your body is flushing those salts and minerals all the time. A good example of this is the military or even the high school athletics. You will see every few years, there's somebody on the high school football team. They're usually in Texas or Florida, Southern California. They're running hard. They're drinking tons of water because the coaches know water is important. And yet one of them will still 
pass out, or they might even die from something called hyponatremia. And we see this sometimes in the military, sometimes in athletics, where somebody is, is low salt and they're drinking all of this water, but they're also sweating hard. They're flushing salts and they're not replacing the electrolytes. The Florida Gators, uh, they picked up on this. And so hot Florida sun, they're out there exercising. They're getting cramps, they're getting sick, they're getting nauseous. And so a couple of scientists got together and said, what solution can we make that's going to aid the Florida Gators to stop having all of these muscle cramps, nauseous, symptoms of even with lots of water they're drinking symptoms of dehydration headaches irritability uh, muscle cramps and so they created a formula they called it gatorade to aid the florida gators which was essentially water salt sugar and food coloring and so you can make the same thing at home for pennies on the dollar without any of the garbage by taking a, a quart I, I noticed you're drinking out of a mason jar so take that quart mason jar, good clean water, whatever you can find, whether that's you know spring water, you know filtered water, whatever you can do, add a quarter teaspoon of good clean natural salt, and then a squeeze of lemon. You can mm -hmm. add some honey or agave or uh, fig syrup or something to, if you'd like a little sweetness to it. But that is the best sports drink for you, your kids, for firefighting. You know, I go out on mountain bike all the time. And before we at Redmond had our own little version of, a, of an electrolyte replacement, that's what I would do. I just fill up my water bottle, quarter teaspoon of salt, squeeze a lemon, pennies on the dollar. You don't have any of the artificial funny colors. You don't have the artificial sweeteners. And, and it's, it's the best sports drink you'll ever find. It is. So I try to do that every afternoon, especially since I'm working in a kitchen where there's a lot of heat. So I always end up sweating. Um, and I do exactly what you explained, a 32 ounce glass Mason jar, a squeeze of half a lemon or a whole and a nice pinch of salt. And I'm good to go. And, and you'll notice that it, it's actually very satisfying. Um, now, if you were to do that four or five times, it actually might start to taste salty. And when that happens, you know, your body's getting up there in that upper level. You know, a few minutes ago, I put that little pinch of salt in my mouth and it, it tasted sweet. I just got back from a, a snow biking ride. I have a big fat tired bike. I go right up in the snow here in Utah. Okay. And so I know I'm low salt right now. And that little piece was so satisfying. Um, and I could probably take a dozen more before it started to taste salty. And when it tastes salty, mm -hmm. I know that, that my levels have come up to the point where, and, and water's the same way. We know that our bodies crave water because we get thirsty. And oftentimes, most of us are dehydrated. And when you come in from a, from a run or maybe a, a hot few hours in the kitchen or a hot yoga session, you know you're dehydrated. And that first glass of water is just like, oh, it's just, it's life-saving. It's so good. By the time you drink your, your third mason jar full, you're going to be like, okay, that not near as rewarding as that first one. And if we listen to our body's salts the same way. Hi, I'm chef Whitney Aronoff. As a personal chef, I created custom organic spices for my clients. These blends are of the highest quality with no added sugar, MSG, caking agents, or any junk. I want you to have the same access to good quality seasonings, which is why I've launched my line of organic spice blends. High Vibration Foods by Starseed Kitchen is my collection of chef-crafted organic spice blends made with only good-for-you ingredients. 
I use organic source spices, ancient mineral-rich Redmond real salt, prepare the blends listening to kundalini mantra music, then charge the jars with the quartz Giza crystals for a true high vibration experience. You can now purchase my most requested blend, 11 magic herbs and spices on starseedkitchen.com. Use code STARSEED for 10% off your purchase. Can't wait for you to enjoy. So I was curious when you went and reached for that little piece of salt, what was the style of salt that you were reaching for? Like, what was the texture? What's the size? If somebody wants to do that at home, what do you recommend they start um, searching for? Yeah. So in salt, we get a lot of questions about granulation size. And there's four main granulation sizes that we have here at Redmond and the same in, in many stores. And the first one, we call it coarse. Uh, coarse salt is about the size of a peppercorn. So it's a little bit larger. And that's the size I like to have in a jar or in a little dish on my table because it just, it dissolves very smoothly on the tongue. Um, it's a little bit larger crystal. So it doesn't tend to clump as much because there's less surface area per, per gram. And, and that size is great for a pepper grinder. You know, in, in, in culinary school, you learn that fresh ground pepper does actually taste better than ground pepper that's been sitting there because when you crack that shell, it releases flavor and, and, and aroma. With salt, it doesn't change. So you put a little salt crystal in your pepper grinder or your salt mill, there's no real benefit of grinding salt other than on many of these grinders, you can change the size. And so mm -hmm. if, you, if you just bought one size, the coarse size, you can usually adjust that. And with that coarse, you could have uh, a, a kosher flake or a fine flake or a powder flake, which are the next three sizes. So coming down, the next size down from coarse is what we call kosher. Now, kosher is a confusing thing when it comes to salt because salt is, there's two meanings of kosher when it comes to salt. So quick, quick uh, religious lesson in Judaism, um, salt there in Judaism, there's certain things that aren't clean. And so they can't eat certain animals. They can't uh, eat certain herbs in certain times of the year because it's not considered kosher or clean according to the Torah, um, first five books of the Old Testament, I believe. And, and, and in Judaism, blood is not kosher. It's not clean. And so if you want a piece of steak, so you want to eat a nice piece of steak, you can't, if you're Jewish, you can't eat that meat until you get the blood out of it because the blood makes the meat unclean or unkosher. And so now remember we talked about salt is hygroscopic. So it absorbs moisture. And so if you take salt crystals and you put it on top of that steak, that salt, because it's hygroscopic, will suck the blood out of that steak. Then you can scrape the crystals off and now you have a kosher piece of meat. And there's a, a crystal, it's about like you'd see on a margarita rimmer. It's known as kosher salt. And it's called that because it will make meat kosher. So when a chef calls for kosher salt or a recipe calls for kosher, unless you're watching Jewish cooking TV, that recipe is calling for a larger crystal or a flaked salt that interacts differently with the food. And so if you were to take a baked potato, roll it in olive oil, then roll it in kosher salt, pretty typical recipe, that larger crystal is going to stick to that outside edge without making the potato too salty. If you did that with fine salt or powder salt, ugh, 
it would taste incredibly salty. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the margarita brimmer. If you were to take your margarita glass, you know, squeeze some lime on it and then dip that in powder salt, very similar to confectionery sugar. If you were to put a sugar cube in your mouth or a Jolly Rancher or a piece of candy in your mouth, your tongue is only touching the outside surface area of, of that piece of candy. So all of the sugar crystals that are inside aren't exposed to the tongue. If you were to take that sugar crystal and crush it into confectioner sugar and then put that whole amount in your mouth, it would it gag you. It would be so overpowering and salt is the same way. So the larger the salt crystal, the more gentle the flavor. And so for a margarita rimmer, they will use a little larger salt crystal. That's called koshering salt. Now, in all foods, there's something that's called kosher certification, where a, a Jewish rabbi will come to the facility. He doesn't offer a blessing. There's no sacrament type uh, ordinance that takes place. They're a health inspector. So once a year, we have a Jewish rabbi that comes to our facility, looks around to make sure people are washing their hands and that there's no uh, cloven animals running down through the facility. And he says, yep, this looks clean. And so we get a little, uh, a little star uh, that says this product is safe. It's clean for the Jewish community. But on our bag that is kosher, it's a red lid or a red pouch. And it's that larger flake. I say that's kosher squared because it's, it's kosher sized. Yes. And it's approved. If you're Jewish, um, then it, it's also approved for the dietary needs of the Jewish community. And so that's kind of an interesting side note on the size of kosher. Then the next size is fine, which is just regular table salt size, just more like granulated sugar. And then we have a fine that's more like confectioner sugar that would be used great for popcorn. Um, if you're going to do your own, make, maybe you're going to sprout some almonds and then sprinkle some salt. Because the fine has more surface area, you can use less and it gives it a stronger flavor just like in the case of maybe a, a, a chunkier sugar versus a confectioner sugar. Yeah. And the fine is what I like to do use when I make my spice blends, when I cook um, in the recipe, when I'm baking and it calls for salt, I go for the fine. And, and that's the best to use. The only, and I use the fine 90, 90, 95% of the time. If we're doing popcorn at the house, I like the really fine stuff because it just gives a nice little pop of flavor. If I am, maybe I'm uh, making some fish, I'll use the kosher salt because I like how it draws, draws it up. Um, it's kind of fun on a tomato. If you're doing, maybe you're making yourself some like a caprese salad. And so you get some really fresh basil, you put a nice piece of mozzarella cheese, put a slice of the tomato. And then if you put a few of those little crystals of the kosher on top, you actually can see on the top of the tomato, little pools of water forming around the crystals because the salt is sucking the water up out of the tomato. Yeah, there's two types of salt that I use all the time. And I use mainly Redmond, um, real salt, but it's the fine and the kosher. I use the fine whenever I have to measure. So again, a lot in baking, I, that's when I'm using the fine because I need an, an exact perfect quarter teaspoon, teaspoon, et cetera. But when I cook, because I'm such an intuitive chef, I like to feel the salt. So I have a little bowl that I keep next to the oven or next to the stove with the kosher salt, because I like to feel it as I go and I season as I go. And kosher is the best for that. You're right. And the other beauty with kosher is it doesn't stick to your fingers. 
Exactly. If you, if you pinch the fine, because it's so hygroscopic, your, your fingers will be coated with the salt. But with kosher, the larger crystal, it doesn't have that same, there's less surface area. So it's not drawing in all that moisture from your fingers even because our fingers are wet. And so if you put your hand in salt, that salt will immediately start to pull the moisture out of your hand and the, the larger crystals do that less. So a question I've always had is if there is a difference between the kosher salt that you see in large boxes at grocery store, like diamond brand is like a generic kosher salt you always see. And then there's your kosher salt, which isn't white and the flakes don't look artificial. It looks like real salt. Whereas when I open the box of diamond kosher salt, um, they're kind of all the same exact size and texture, and they almost look like artificial. Can you explain to me what's going on there and what's the difference? Yeah. So in nature, salt in, in nature should look like a snowflake, not like a snowflake, but it should be unique like snowflakes. So if you um, open up, a, and it doesn't matter if it's it's our brand or one of the French gray brands or whatever, but but salt, if it was created naturally, should every crystal should look unique. Um, a lot of salt today is used, uh, they use a process called vacuum pan evaporation. And what they do there, remember we talked about how that, if you went to France or went to Hawaii and you have that clay-lined pond, you're waiting for the hot air of the Mediterranean to evaporate that water. Well, the other way you can do that is you can bring all the water into a big pan and boil it and boil all the water off. And in a vacuum, water boils at a lower temperature. And so if you were to take that water and put it in what they call a vacuum pan evaporator, you create a vacuum you can get the water to evaporate faster with less um, with less uh, energy in a vacuum. And then you can add, you can manipulate that process to get different sized crystals. And then you're also adding anti-caking agents to that. And so that's how those crystals will look so perfectly um, uniform. And if you take salt and dump it into your, into your hand and it looks like perfect little shaped beads, you know that that's not been produced in a natural, you know, slower, you know, more natural process. And so now fortunately kosher, because it's larger crystals, that kosher size has less of a tendency to clump. And so oftentimes if you were to go to a store and, and you looked at a particular brand and you bought their fine, and then you bought their kosher and then their coarse, the, there's more anti-caking agents and, and processes in the finer salt because they want to stop that, that clumping. The old tagline, you know, there's a, there's a particular salt company and there's a, a, a cute little umber, a girl with an umbrella and she's walking with an umbrella and out of the back, she's holding the salt container and she doesn't realize it's dumping out behind her. And the tagline is when it rains, it pours. And, and that tagline was created because when it rains outside, it's really humid. And so the salt would clump in the shaker. And so that when it rains, it pours tagline is because we have, we've coated that crystal and so it can't interact with any of the moisture. And so it will pour out of your shaker when it's pouring rain outside. Kind of a cute marketing campaign, but it is because it's coated in chemicals that allows that to happen. It's a very good marketing campaign. And it's great to finally know the story. <laughs> so we can choose whether or not we want to keep participating in it. <laughs> well, I have to ask you, one of the top questions that I get as a chef is when I'm working with, you know, new clients, they tell me that their doctor has recommend that they use iodized salt because they need more iodine in their diet. My recommendation is to always use real salt and 
you know, work seaweed into their diet, whether it's making bone broths with kombu or sprinkling a mix of real salt with a little dull seaweed onto one of their meals, you know, it's great on rice. Um, but you know, I've been a chef for almost nine years now, and I constantly get the comment from clients that their doctor says iodized salt. And they even tell me the brands of iodized salt that they want me to buy. I'm wondering how you tackle this when you get it in your personal life or in business, how you guide people to the real healthy choice. So you have mentioned one of my favorites is Dulce. And so we'll talk a little bit about why I think that's such a great product here in a second. And I think it's an important conversation because no discussion today on salt would be complete without talking about iodine. And it's interesting why we as as society today associate iodine with salt because Yes, in the oceans, there's trace amounts of iodine. And in a natural product like real salt, there is a small amount of iodine in it. Even though the label says this salt does not supply iodide, a necessary nutrient, there's actually iodine in it. And so the, the reason that's the case is we have to go back to World War I. And during World War I, the U.S. started the draft. And they started the draft to find men to serve in the military because this is when that the draft was started. What they found was though, now given the time, I guess think about when World War I is, you know, so we're early, early 1900s. And when we get into that time frame, a lot of white sugar, a lot of white flour, eating out of cans, kind of industrialized revolution. And so the men out of the Midwest had a very high percentage of goiter, not so much on the coasts, not so much in Texas, but in the Midwest particularly, there was a big goiter problem. Goiter is a swelling of the thyroid, which can result because of an iodine deficiency. And so, and it was interesting that it was happening in the Midwest. It wasn't in the coast because they're eating more seaweed, they're eating fish, they're getting some dulse, they're getting foods that are naturally rich in iodine. Of course, this is also when our soils start to get depleted and, and our foods don't have the protein contents in, in the wheat that you used to and doesn't have the same nutritional value because of lack of crop rotation and all kinds of different, different challenges. So a group of scientists met with the US government and said, okay, we have got a serious problem. We have got to stop this goiter issue or we can't draft men into the military because you can't have you can't be in the military with a big goiter problem. And so they said, we have got to find a way to get people to eat more iodine. And I... I don't know what the conversation was like. I hope somebody said, well, let's have a campaign on the importance of eating dulse and the importance of adding seaweed or fish to our diets. Um, they actually tried to add iodine to bread because uh, to flour. People are eating a lot of flour. They're eating a lot of white refined flour. And they said, if we can find a way to add iodine to flour, we will ensure that people are eating iodine because everybody's eating bread. They tried to add iodine as a, as a volume enhancer, as a dough enhancer, and it didn't work at all. Um, and so bromide, as you probably know, in baking, bromide is a very common additive into enriched flour. It's, it's bromide. Yeah. And they tried to add iodine. It didn't, didn't work. And so they, I don't know if they ever tried adding it to the water supply like they do in Florida in some cities to encourage you know, consumption. But iodine is kind of unique it's not stable in a lot of in a lot of ways and what they found was is they could take I, potassium iodide which is a form of iodine they could add it to salt and it was generally pretty stable and so um that's why and, and they created a law that said okay every salt company in the u.s if you're a salt company by law you are now required to add iodine to your salt and if you don't add it 
you have to put a label, a warning that says, warning, this salt does not supply iodide, a necessary nutrient. So that's why that label is on every salt product you'll see, even though real salt has about 10% in a quarter teaspoon of real salt, there's about 10% of your recommended daily allowance of iodine. Um, now, is it 100%? No. So you should never eat you know, real salt hoping to get all of your your iodine, nor should you eat it trying to get all of your potassium or your calcium or your protein um, because salt's not a source of protein. Um, so you should eat other foods and salt was the same way. So that's why iodine is now associated with salt was because of the draft in World War One. Now, because of a lot of reasons, everybody, almost everybody is iodine deficient. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it's because of the diet they're choosing to eat. You know, they're not eating a lot of fresh seaweed. They're not eating, you know, fish. They're eating out of cans. They're eating out of, you know, supermarkets or the fast food joints. And so most people and probably almost every one of your clients is iodine deficient. That's a huge problem. We do know that iodine deficiency results in goiter, which was why that was associated with salt. But what we, what some people don't realize is iodine is a really big part of tumors in the breast tissue and in um, other reproductive, you know, a lot of research has been done on iodine levels and tumor growth. And when iodine levels are down, the tumor growths are higher, both for men and women. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that men can get breast cancer too, and breast tissue um, does need good healthy levels of iodine as well as all kinds of reproductive health and hormone health. So iodine is essential and everybody I believe should be either seeking out foods rich in iodine, like the ones that you mentioned, mozzarella cheese actually is higher levels of iodine than some people realize. So there's our good sources of iodine and you can add iodine to your diet fairly easy and dulse is so high, like just a quarter teaspoon of dulse has like a thousand percent or something of the iodine that our bodies need. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing how easy it is to get iodine. And there's been some good research. There was a doctor, he's an MD out of the Midwest, Dr. David Brownstein. He did a bunch of research on iodine and salt. And so they, what they did is they said, okay, if we're going to take your blood serum levels um, and we're going to add 100 micrograms of iodine to your diet, we would expect your iodine levels intercellularly and in your serums to go up you know, this far. So you add 100, you maybe get this much. Um, what they found was if you added that much salt, iodized salt, you actually get less. Um, so iodine and salt, iodized salt is a very poor way to get iodine in your diet. Does it help? Yeah, if you're eating 150, 200% of your iodine and iodized salt, you do get some trickle down, but it's not very bioavailable, especially compared to something like seaweed, like dulse that you mentioned, um, fish, these other sources of iodine that are much more available than when you get it in iodized salt. So that's what I tell people is, hey, listen to your doctor. Yes, iodine is important. You need to get it. Salt's a really poor way to do that. Um, and in order to even get enough to even make a difference, you, you're eating more salt, especially more processed salt than you should. So most doctors now, especially on the, on the natural continuum would say, hey, eat great natural clean salt, but don't eat salt to get your iodine levels. Find some dulse, find some seaweed that you really like, add it to your dish. Um, you know, and if and if you just don't like that at all, there are some great supplements that are iodine, that are bioavailable iodine supplements. One is called uh, Lugol's Iodine Solution. Um, there's a, another one called Iodrol, and there's some great iodine supplements if you just 
you know, don't like that flavor of seaweed. And it, it has a, I mean, seaweed has a seaweedy taste. Um, at small amounts, most people wouldn't even notice it if you added a little sprinkle to your food. Um, but if you're just completely opposed um, to that purple seaweed, um, yeah, there's other ways to do it, but salt's not, salt's not a great way to do it. Yeah. I like to mix a little dulse with a little sea salt and sprinkle it on eggs, on brown rice. Like those are the two ways that I like to get it. You could also just add a little bit whenever you're making a soup and blend it into the soup. So then you don't even know it's there and, and you will barely even taste it. We, we have a product that we haven't launched yet that I've played with over the years. Um, and it's about uh, 10% dulse. And so if you want to make this on your own, it's a great way to do it. Um, and it also makes it easy to see how much salt you're putting on your food. Because if you were to take uh, a shaker of salt, buy some dulse, pulverize it into a powder or just buy a dulse powder and just mix it into your pre-mix it into your salt, um, then you have iodized salt, but it's in a form that's way better than the chemical version of iodized salt. And then when you sprinkle it on your food at 10%, you really can't taste the dulse. If you get up to 30% of dulse and 70% mm -hmm. salt, you do start to notice that seaweed flavor. But if it's 10, 15% dulse to salt ratio, you won't taste it. And now you've got iodized salt. That's actually yeah. a very clean version of iodized salt. I love that. I'm going to try it. Thank you. Well, I have so many more questions about salt that I don't think we're going to have time to get to today. Um, so I'm going to have to have you on again, but there's one more question I have to bring up before I let you go. And that is how do you handle when people you're talking with say, you know, my doctor's recommended I have to be on a low sodium diet, you know, that, that I hear a lot as well as a personal chef, their doctor wants them to be on a low sodium diet. To me, that means what you really need to do is stop eating processed food. You know, if you're eating canned soups, it's time to eat real soups and, you know, season it with real salt. Um, but I'd love to know how you manage when you get comments like that, that they can't try your salt because they need, they're on a low sodium diet. Well, I always preface that by saying, you know, you need to work with your healthcare professional and I am not going to, you know, try to, I'm not practicing medicine. I'm not a doctor. However, I would push back a little to your healthcare professional and say, you know, you tell me not to eat salt, but yet the first thing that I do when I go into the hospital is you give me an IV of saline solution, which is salt water. So is it the salt that's bad? Or, or exactly what is, what's the challenge? And, and you're right, you know, oftentimes if you're eating a diet of highly processed foods, salt is a very cheap preservative on foods that are very nutrient poor and also have other chemicals that are interacting with our bodies, high sugar, for instance. And so it's actually a lot of studies now pointing to the high sugar that's impacting blood pressure, not the salt, because you can have an individual consuming high amounts of sodium chloride and fall into the highest blood pressure or the lowest blood pressure groups, depending on if they're eating adequate amounts of calcium, potassium, magnesium that's offsetting it's offsetting that sodium. And so unless somebody's on dialysis, most a healthy kidney can process about four ounces of salt a day. That's that's quite a bit. Um, and that's why in the hospital you can get bags of saline solution without having problems because it's in a it's in a natural state and you have the fluid. Now, again, if, if you're in kidney failure, our kidneys are designed to filter salt. They can, can filter way more salt than most people would ever consume. If your kidneys are shutting down, ignore everything we're saying today because then your body legitimately 
cannot process salt if you don't have healthy kidneys. But as far as salt being bad, I say, yeah, probably need to have a different conversation with your healthcare professional. And when somebody switches over to a natural diet, the salt level in their diet would drop substantially. Because if you're eating fast food a lot, if you're eating out of cans, you're eating, like you mentioned, soups and processed meals, salt is a very cheap preservative. And the salt that is used as a cheap preservative is also the cheap processed salt. And Mm -hmm. so the salt that they're using in these foods that are nutrient poor are demineralized. They're, you know, have anti-caking agents added to them. And it's in food that's not very nutritious to begin with. And so when somebody comes in, hey, my doctor's talked to me about a low salt diet, that's, I think that's a great time to talk to that doctor again and say, okay, so help me understand why I'm on a low salt diet. If the first thing that you do when I come in to see you is you give me an IV of a saline solution, which is salt water. And so it, it's not the salt that's the problem. It's the other either other chemicals with the salt or the food that's attached with the salt or the French fries that all the salt is on. It, it's not the good clean salt because animals need salt, humans need salt. We're a saline solution in motion. But if, if you were to go get an IV of, of processed salt with all those chemicals added, that's not what you're getting. You're getting a very clean, natural saline in that in that IV. You're not getting, you know, sea salt from the grocery store that has yellow prussiate of soda that has all these other chemicals that are added to it. And Darryl, it tastes better. Daryl, you are such a wealth of information. I absolutely love learning about salt and minerals with you. I'm just blown away. And like I mentioned, did not even get to ask all the questions I have about salt and clearly only a chef would have a long list of questions about salt. So I'll have to have you back on, but in the meantime, um, where can the people listening find Redmond real salt, where can they pick up all the different textures that we talked about? So I think you don't, don't just listen to me. Obviously I'm a crazy guy that's passionate about salt, but if you go to our website, it's real salt, just R E A L S A L T just real salt.com there. You can find um, some link to some of these articles we talked about. You can see pictures of the different granulation sizes, great place to start. And then again, I am, I am biased. I will admit, I do think that the Redmond salt is a great product, but I'm also happy to have other natural, good, clean products. And so I think if your listeners will ask those three questions, um, you know, what's the source, who's producing it, what are they doing to it? I think whether you find our product or one of the the French products or one of the other, you know, pink or the Andean, um, you know, ancient seabed salts, there's a lot of good salts out there. There's some fun salts out there as a chef. You know, I, you know, there's some, we didn't even get to talk about some of the uh, like Cabernet salt and yes. the black salts. And, and there's really a lot of good neat products out there, smoked salts. We can save all that for another conversation, but yes, um, yeah, salt is not the enemy that uh, maybe, maybe your listeners thought it was. I absolutely agree. And I actually think it's one of the best items to pick up when you're traveling. It's like my number one thing that I look for to bring home from a vacation um, are different types of salts. You see different types of textures, different types of flavors, um, you know, and uh, I hope this just invites more people to think about the salt that they're buying. Just like, you know, as someone who makes and creates their own spice blends to sell to people, I want people to be looking at the ingredients I use in my spice blends, just like I want people to be looking at the ingredients um, of the salt that they purchase. So 
Daryl, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to having you back on again so we can talk more. Thanks, Chef Pointy. It's been a pleasure. Little teaser for the next one. Well, uh, I'll give you my recipe to make your own Cabernet salt. So if you like Ooh. a red wine and you like salt, we can uh, you can make your own Cabernet salt. And uh, we'll talk more about that next time. Yes, absolutely. Those are the questions I'm saving for you so we can dive deep in all the different types of salts that are out there. So I look forward to that next conversation. Thanks, Chef Whitney. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.